Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. The reading for this morning is out of John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. Lord, thank you for this time together. We're grateful to get to to worship and to learn um, about you and through these gospels that we're going through as a community. Pray for John, Lord, let your spirit flow through him, and let our our eyes and ears be open to what you have to share with us. In your name, amen. TJ, you look like a giant up there, (laughs) towering over the microphone. Hey, good morning. I'm very, very glad that you're here, uh, and I'm really excited to preach today. If if you weren't here last week, we, we had Ashley Matthews from Trinity Anglican. It was delightful. So if you missed the message last week from Ashley, I hope that you'll go back and listen to that. I want to ask, how many of you have a lucky item of some kind, like a sweatshirt or a routine, like you pat a bald guy's head before the game or something? Who's got a lucky thing that you always do? Okay, what is it? Your favorite what? Bear hoodie. Okay, naturally. I usually preach in a bear hoodie. Yeah. Uh, Who else? What's another lucky thing that you have? Okay. Your dog is your lucky thing, and when you have your dog nearby, what happens? You don't usually mess up. I need to have your dog with me to get through this sermon. Yeah, uh, we have lots of lucky things. I, don't, I didn't plan to share this because it makes me look really weird, but I tried really hard to be good at basketball in high school. I don't know why I'm sharing this. This is a bad idea. But my little sister had this blue glittery nail polish, and for some reason I painted my big toenail on one foot. I was terrible at basketball, so it didn't help. But uh, (laughs) nervous laughter ensues. (laughs) See, that's why you stick with your notes so you don't share stuff like that. Lucky stuff. If you had like solid quantitative data on having your lucky thing with you, it would probably prove that there's not a clear relationship between your lucky thing and your team winning. I'm sure that there were lots of OSU fans yesterday who went through their rhythm and routine and it didn't work. Too soon? Sorry. (laughs) 
That's kind of what's going on in the text that TJ just read. In fact, if you've got a Bible, you can just keep it open to John chapter 5. The setting for this text is at the pool of Bethesda, which may better be called the pools of Bethesda. It's these two pools. And you can actually go visit these pools today. It's it's just on the north side of the Temple Mount uh, by what's called St. Anne's Church. And these two pools were fed by an underground aqueduct, and the, the rumor was that uh, when, when, the water, when the water would be fed by these aqueducts, it would bubble up, and people thought that was a sign that an angel has visited the waters and stirred the waters. And so whoever is the first one to hop in and get in the water is going to be made well. And it's interesting that if you were to go to, uh, to the Temple Mount today, you could visit St. Anne's Church, you'd see how it's really close to what was known as the Sheep Gate. And the Sheep Gate was named that because one of these pools was designated for washing the sheep that would be used in temple, uh, ritual temple sacrifice. They would be cleaned there at the temple and washed, and then they'd be taken into the temple to be sold. Uh, these, these sheep were cared for, but also because of the other pool that was rumored to be the place where the angel came and stirred the water, it was a place where a lot of people who were, who were paralyzed or were sick or had some kind of ailment would gather. The pools of Bethesda were, were an interesting spot because you have these animals that come to be cleaned and cared for that are destined to be used for a sacred purpose. But then you also have these people who come who are the, the, dis, the discarded people of society who are going to be overlooked and destined to a life of some kind of suffering. The animals are cared for and the people are ignored and discarded. It's an interesting place. Challenging to be a, a paralyzed person or a paraplegic in our world today. Can you imagine being a paraplegic person in the first century? Thinking about, we've, you know, whenever there's a, a Maundy Thursday service and you talk about how Jesus washed the disciples' feet and the things that they step in, uh, if you are a, a paraplegic and you're, you're getting everywhere by the generosity of others giving you a ride or maybe moving by your hands, you can imagine some of the challenges of a person in that setting. The hygiene challenges, the, the income challenges, relying on the generosity of others. And all of this takes place, it happens at the Pool of Bethesda. Interestingly, if you go to New York City, one of the biggest fountains in Central Park is called the Bethesda Fountain, and it's this angel of Bethesda where it's like rumored to have stirred the healing waters. Now, what's funny about the Pool of Bethesda is that it, became, it developed this reputation of being a place of healing, but not just for Jews. Greek people, pagan people actually thought this to be a place of miraculous hearing, uh, healing. They called the Pools of Bethesda an Asclepion which was like a, a, a sacred site dedicated to the Greek god Asclepius, who was known for being the god of healing. And all of these people gather. And on a Sabbath day, during a festival, Jesus decided to go to this Asclepion, to the pools of Bethesda by the Sheep Gate, where the animals were being prepared for sacrifice. And he approaches this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And it's interesting, Jesus uh, on this high holy day is going to a place near the Temple Mount, but going to a place that you might not expect. And he goes to this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And you think about numbers in the Bible, and especially in John's gospel. Numbers tend to be really important. 40 is a year of completion, a a, a count of wholeness. This man has been in his condition for 38 years, nearly the totality of his existence. He's just on the edge of this being his dominant narrative for all of his life. 
And Jesus approaches this man and asks him a question that is maybe even apparent, may appear to be insulting for its obviousness. The question is, do you want to be well? Or in the version that, that TJ read, do you want to be healed? I'm calling the sermon this morning, Wellness Revisited, because last year in September, we did a sermon series called Learning to Be Well. And there was such strong resonance like in the congregation with this theme of learning to be well, but also just with me personally. I, I've come to believe that this question is the question. It's really, it's the question that each of us need to answer as we're navigating life. Is your ambition, is your drive to be a healthy person, to be holistically well? N.T. Wright, uh, in one commentary, rephrased the question that, that Jesus asked to the, para, uh, the paraplegic, and he said it in this way. He said to the guy, do you really want to get better? Or are you now quite happy to eke out your days lounging around here with the feeble excuse that someone always gets in the water ahead of you? You think about friends of yours, or maybe it's you, people who keep returning to a situation that is so unfriendly to their souls. The woman who keeps returning to the abusive boyfriend. The man who won't leave the bottle or his fix behind. The young adult who can't not go to the casino or can't not look at pornography on a screen that's in his pocket. We develop in life this kind of Stockholm syndrome with our vices and with our habits. We come to love the things uh, that kill us. We come addicted to our mediocrity and our sin. We find that more, we are more comfortable with our toxicity, our familiar toxicity, than we are with the unfamiliar freedom that Jesus wants to offer us. The question mattered to this man who'd been in this condition for 38 years, and it also matters to us. Do you want to be well? There's an author named James K.A. Smith who wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And Jamie Smith argues in this book that in life, each of us are ultimately driven by the things that we want the most. We are ultimately driven by the things that we want the most. And it turns out that we may not actually want the things that we say we want the most. He says, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. And this is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves. You are what you love or you are what you want. Which as we've observed, our habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love or want a vision of my life that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. The things that we repeatedly do that become habituated in our life become the things that we actually want and love the most and drive us. So as you think about the values that you would state are the most important for you, as you look at your habits and what you do unconsciously, or you do by autopilot, do you actually want or love the most the thing that you say you want or love the most? Do you want to know what you really want? Watch what you do by autopilot. One of the challenges that we have in learning to want wise and worthy things is that we are all immersed in a culture that behaves like an upside-down rewards program. 
that pats us on the back for doing things that are mediocre or like fine or even toxic and punishes or criticizes us when we choose to do things that are truly wise and worthy, when we act on those wants that are virtuous. Uh, John Tyson said this. He said, binge watching entire seasons of shows on Netflix, normal. Spending $4,000 on a trip to Europe, normal. Training hours a week to maintain our looks, normal. Joining a fantasy sports league and tracking it like a Wall Street trader. Does that hit close to home for anybody? <laughs> normal. Devoting your life to serving Jesus, extreme and probably unhealthy. Our normal is all upside down. Last week when Ashley was here, she preached on the words of Jesus and Mark, who said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Ashley said in her message, when we deny our sickness, or when we deny that our wants and our loves have become disordered and, and, and results in destructive behaviors, we deny ourselves an opportunity for Jesus to be close to us and to make us well. When we live in denial and when we hide and when we, we like pretend not to know about the things that are making us sick, we're denying ourselves an opportunity to be close to Jesus. But if you've ever been confronted with a behavior of yours that was destructive or was the, that was beneath your dignity, it's really embarrassing. It's really humiliating. Sometimes it can be truly terrifying to come face to face with the reality of how you really are and who you really are. And so what we tend to do is when, when we think we're in a situation where our behaviors or our hypocrisy is going to be exposed is that we hide. We hide from the people that are going to illuminate this part of us. And we also live in denial. This is the words of Jesus in John 3. He said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but read this with me. People loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth, read this with me, comes into the light. It's fear that keeps us in the dark. But the person who lives in the truth voluntarily enters the light. I was taking a nap a couple of weeks ago, and I was like right on the edge of sleep. The room was really dark, and I was right there, and I really needed a nap. And my daughter came in, precious thing, and flipped on the lights, and I sat up, and I was like roaring. And what do you think I said? Turn off the lights. And then she cried, and I felt bad and didn't get to enjoy the rest of the nap. But this is what happens when the lights are turned on to, to like our, our deeds of darkness, our thoughts of darkness. When the light is turned on to our sin, we fight the light. And it's fear. It's shame. We want to distance ourselves from anyone or anything that exposes how duplicitous we are on the inside. In his book, uh, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning, who himself was a recovering alcoholic, he's now deceased, told the story of when he was in an inpatient uh, rehab program for his alcoholism. And he encountered this one guy in his group was, who was especially resistant to being honest about his struggle. He said, one of my indelible memories goes back to April 1975 when I was a patient at an alcoholic rehabilitation center in a small town uh, north of Minneapolis. The setting was a large split-level recreation room on the brow of a hill overlooking an artificial lake. 
and 25 chemically dependent men were assembled. Our leader was a trained counselor, skilled therapist, and senior member of the staff. His name was Sean Murphy O'Connor. Sean directed a patient named Max to sit on the hot seat in the center of the U-shaped group. Max was a nominal Christian, married with five children, owner and president of his company, wealthy, affable, and gifted with remarkable poise. How long have you been drinking like a pig, Max? Max winced. Well, that's quite unfair. We'll see. I want to get into your drinking history. How much booze per day? Max relit his pipe. Well, I have two Marys with the men before lunch, twin Martins after the office closes at five, and then the wife likes to drink before dinner. So we have two Martin martinis before dinner and two more before going to bed. A total of eight drinks a day, Max? Murphy O'Connor inquired. Absolutely right. Not a drop more, not a drop less. You're a liar. Unruffled, Max replied, I'll pretend I didn't hear that. You ever hide a bottle in your house, Max? Asked Benjamin, a Navajo Indian from New Mexico. Don't be ridiculous. I've got a bar in my living room. Do you keep any booze in the garage, Max? Naturally. After replenish the stock, a man in my profession does a lot of entertaining at home. How many bottles in the garage? Oh, I don't know the actual count. The interrogation continued for another 20 minutes. Max fudged and hedged, minimized, rationalized, and justified his drinking patterns. And finally, hemmed in by relentless cross-examination, he admitted that he kept a bottle of vodka in the nightstand, a bottle of gin in the suitcase for travel purposes, Another in his bathroom cabinet for medicinal purposes, and three more at the office for entertaining clients. He squirmed occasionally, but he never lost his veneer of confidence. Give me a phone, said Murphy O'Connor. A telephone was wheeled into the room, and our receiver was rigged electronically so that the party dialed could be heard loud and clear through the living room on the lake. Hank Shea? Yeah, who's this? My name's Sean Murphy O'Connor. I'm a counselor at an alcoholic and drug rehabilitation center in the Midwest. Do you remember a customer named Max? I'm wondering if you could tell me approximately how much Max drinks every day. Well, he's a heck of a guy. I really like him. He drops 30 bucks in here every afternoon. Max has his standard six martinis, buys a few drinks, and always leaves me a good tip. Good man. Max leaped to his feet. Raising his right hand defiantly, he unleashed a stream of profanity worthy of a stevedore. He clawed at the sofa and spat on the rug. Then, in an incredible coup de main, he immediately regained his composure and remarked matter-of-factly that even Jesus lost his temper in the temple when he saw the Sadducees abusing their power. You ever been unkind to one of your kids? Fred asked. Glad you brought that up, Fred. I have a fantastic rapport with my four boys. Last Thanksgiving, I took them on a fishing expedition to the Rockies. I didn't ask you that. At least once in his life, every father has been unkind to one of his kids, so give us a specific example. A long pause ensued. Finally, well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old a daughter last Christmas Eve. What happened? I don't remember. Where did it happen? What were the circumstances? Max's voice rose in anger. I told you I don't remember. Unobtrusively, Murphy O'Connor dialed Max's hometown once more and spoke with his wife. Sean Murphy O'Connor calling, ma'am. We're in the middle of a group therapy session, and your husband just told us he was unkind to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Can you give us the details, please? A soft voice filled the room. Yeah, I can tell you the whole thing. Our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of shoes for her Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24th, my husband drove her downtown and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the store. 
When she climbed back into the pickup truck her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the world. Max decided to celebrate on the way home, so he stopped at the pub uh, a few miles from our house and told Debbie he would be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day and about 12 degrees above zero. So Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. It was a little after the three in the afternoon and my husband met some army buddies in the tavern. Swept up in the euphoria over the reunion, he lost track of time, purpose, and everything else, and he came out of the pub at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and on her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and forefinger on her right hand. She'll be deaf for the rest of her life. Max appeared to be having a coronary. He struggled to his feet, making jerky, uncoordinated movements. His glasses flew to the right and his pipe to the left. He collapsed on all fours and sobbed hysterically. Murphy O'Connor stood up and said softly, let's get out of here. And then to Max, get out of here before I throw up. I'm not running a rehab for liars. Manning says, the philosophy of tough love is behind is based on the conviction that no effective recovery can be initiated until a person admits that they are powerless over alcohol and that their life has become unmanageable. The alternative to confronting the truth is always some form of self-destruction. For Max, there were three options. Eventual insanity, premature death, or sobriety. In order to free the captive, one must name the captivity Max's denial had to be identified through merciless interaction with his peers. His self-deception had to be unmasked in its absurdity. It says you can't free the captive until you've named the captivity. Uh, Paul said in a letter to 1 Timothy, he said, Some sins are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, but the sins of others trail behind them. You may audit your own life, or maybe you're like auditing the lives of the people that you came with today, and you see uh, obvious sins. Maybe that you call these sins of commission, things that you've done, destructive behaviors that harm uh, the person who's committing them and harm the people around them. You may be aware that your captivity or your sickness is a sin of commission. It could be that your particular sin is a sin of omission. It's withholding or refraining from doing a good that you know you ought to do. But it could be still that the, the, the unhealth within you, the unwellness within you is not nearly that obvious. It could be a disparity between your inner and your outer life. Uh, Pete Scazzaro in The Emotionally Healthy Church uh, talks about how this often manifests itself in the lives of, of church people. He gives examples. He said, you can be a dynamic, gifted speaker for God in public and be an unloving spouse and parent at home. You can function as a church board member or pastor and be unteachable, insecure, and defensive. You can memorize entire books of the New Testament and still be unaware of your depression and anger, even displacing it on other people. You can fast and pray half a day a week for years as a spiritual discipline and constantly be critical of others, justifying it as discernment. You can lead hundreds of people in Christian ministry while being driven by a deep personal need to compensate for a nagging sense of failure. 
You can pray for deliverance from the demonic realm when in reality you are simply avoiding conflict, repeating an unhealthy pattern of behavior traced back to the home in which you grew up. You can be outwardly cooperative at church but unconsciously try to undercut or defeat your supervisor by coming habitually late, constantly forgetting meetings, withdrawing and becoming apathetic, or ignoring the real issue behind why you are hurt and you are angry. There are endless ways to manifest our unhealth in this world. As a church, we've talked about health a lot. Uh, we, want, we want to be a community that values health, but we don't want to just talk about health. We don't want to just appear to be people who are well and healthy. My personal desire, my desire for everybody who would say, I am a part of this community, is that we would really and truly be learning how to be well through and through as we're following Jesus together. It's something that I want. Is that something that you want for yourself? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well spiritually, having your sins forgiven, being at peace with God, remaining in Jesus and bearing fruit? Do you want to be well spiritually? Do you want to be well physically, stewarding well the body that God has given you, accepting with gratitude and humility, like, this is what I look like, and stewarding your body? Do you want to be well physically? Do you want to be well emotionally, well in your emotions, well in your mind, well in, in, in like, like your, your thought life? Do you want to be well emotionally, actively untangling the complexities that we pick up as people born in a fallen world? Do you want to be well relationally, well in your marriages, well in your friendships, well in your co-working relationships, well in your relationship with your parents, alive or deceased? Because we all have to make sense of our relationship with our families of origin. Do you want to be well relationally? Do you want to be well financially, putting money in its proper place and not letting it govern you? Do you want to be well technologically, managing your relationship with screens? Do you want to be well holistically? Jesus said, I have come so that you can have life and have it abundantly. The invitation of Jesus is to be well in abundance, but he's not going to force something on you that you don't want for yourself. And you know what's fascinating is in most of the times in the Gospels, people initiate their own healing with Jesus. Jairus initiated healing on behalf of his daughter. Uh, the woman with the issue of blood initiated her own he healing by reaching out and touching the hem of Jesus' garment. But in this case, when Jesus initiates the healing of this paralytic, he first verifies that it's something he wants for himself. He's not going to force something on you that you don't want for yourself. Do you want to be well? Now, you're here this morning, and you may not be thinking of wellness for yourself, and your heart is grieved for someone that you love, someone that you care about who is deeply unwell right now. And a sad reality is that we can't want another person into wellness. We can't want another person into wellness. Uh, the hardest habit in the world to change is somebody else's. And one of the sobering realities is recognizing what we can and what we cannot control in this life. And one thing we cannot control is the wants of other people. 
But we are ridiculously responsible for stewarding our own, for curating our own wants and our own loves. So what do you do when someone you love is behaving in ways that are destructive, when they are being guided by unworthy and destructive wants? You pray and knock down the door of heaven on their behalf. It's come up numerous times in John's gospel where Jesus says no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them. And so we intercede on behalf of the people we love who are being driven by unworthy wants, asking God to to redirect and rewire their hearts. But then we also take ridiculous responsibility for our own answer to Jesus' question, do you want to be well? And by God's grace, you pray and you strive to control and to redirect your own wants toward wise and worthy ends. Maybe you're thinking about somebody else primarily this morning. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're keenly aware of your own desperate need to be made well. You're painfully aware that you're not okay. And you've made so many destructive choices. Now, it could be that no one on earth knows about it except for you. That your Saturday vices follow you around like a dark cloud on Sunday morning in church. It could be that you've made so many destructive choices again and again and aware again that you're almost paralyzed with pain and regret and shame. And maybe you feel like you are so far gone that it's like I'm at the bottom. I may as well wallow in it. You feel a temptation not to be well, which is what you most need, and make movement that direction, but just to go ahead and be destructive while you're down there. Like, I am beyond repair. I am beyond the reach of God, so I'm going to just, like, make myself miserable in the process as a kind of messed up penance. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in despair or depression about the things that you've done or the good that you've withheld or the disparity between your public life, the the you that everyone else knows and the you that only you and God truly know on the inside and you're at a point of desperation. And if you are at a place of desperation and and like self-loathing even, you may be very close to a breakthrough. If you're at the place where you're truly despairing of your ability to help yourself, I say thanks be to God because you might be right there on the edge. I have this this app called Pray As You Go. It's like a Catholic prayer app. It's awesome. Everyone could use it. And there's an examine prayer that you're to do at the end of every day to reflect on where you've been. And in most versions of the examine, it begins like this. Know that you are in the presence of God who loves you and who is delighted that you have come. And this morning, no matter your story, no matter your secrets, you are here in the presence of God who loves you, who is delighted that you have come. This comes from Timothy Keller. He said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. How do you know where you're unwell? And what do you do when you know it? Look within your own heart and take an audit of those places where you're particularly defensive. When someone brings up this topic, like you get out your weapons or you run away, look for those places in your life where you're especially defensive, the unsafe topics of conversation. 
Where are the secretive parts in your life? Where are the places where, like, you want to steer clear of this ballpark of topics because you don't want anyone to know that you've got a secret buried right in the middle of it? Uh, maybe you've been in, in seasons of habitual sin and you find yourself lying everywhere in life, even about things that aren't related to your deepest secrets, there's a sign that unhealth is taking root in your heart. What are those behaviors or what are those thought patterns that you tend to rationalize? And you've become endlessly creative at justifying why this is okay for you, even though it wouldn't be okay for other people. If you looked in the wake of your life, where are your victims and what would they point to? How do you know where you're unwell? Look at those places you're defensive. Look at those places you're secretive. Look at the places where you're rationalizing or where you can look back and see, I've harmed people. And what do you do with that unhealth? Three things. The first is to confess your sin. The language of God is honesty. If you feel like your prayers are hitting a brick ceiling, it's because you could be speaking the language of lies and the message is not getting through. The language of God is honesty. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to not only forgive us, but to purify us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. If you're unwell, whether it's a gross sin of commission or omission, or maybe it's a sense of disparity, unhealth in your emotions, your relationships, anywhere, name that. Confess that to God. But then you must also confess it to other people. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. What's the purpose? So that you may be healed. Every Tuesday at 4 o'clock, I've got a standing FaceTime with two other pastors, and they're really, really busy, and so we hop in. And the first question is, all right, who's going to go first? And the purpose of the conversation is to confess sins. It's not like we're trying to get out of the habit of, like, prefacing or buttering each other up to think better of ourselves. It's like, this is what I thought about. This is what I did. This is where I'm in need of God's grace today. And we do this thing that feels really awkward the first 10 times. But after each one of us confesses, we say, Brother, God's word says to us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Every week we're doing that. If language is the honesty of God, we need to speak. Uh, if honesty is the language of God, we need to speak God's language to Him and to each other. We confess our sins. Second, we tell God our intentions and we invite Him into them. God, my intention, my want is to be well. And that might not actually be your intention or your greatest want yet. You may say, I want to want to be well. Andy Golahorn wrote a song called I Want to Be Well based on the story in John 5. And he's got a bridge which really reflects the self-loathing of despair of sin. And he said, it feels like a lie that I'm made in your image. My faith has run dry. I'm more a skeptic than a witness. But I sit by the water afraid to get in. If you ask me that question, I'll say it again. I want to be well. I want to be well. Or... I want to want to be well. Name your intentions to God. I want to want the right things, the, the wise things. 
And I believe that over time, he's going to honor that intention, that named intention. Keep going back to the well for a drink. I want to be well. I want to want to be well. So um, um, confess your sins. Tell God your intentions. And then three, make a plan in community. I am confident that there are people in this room who have who've struggled with a breakthrough through some kind of enduring sin because you never confessed it to anybody else other than God and you never made a plan with anybody uh, but yourself. Invite a, your community into your process of learning to be well. You may have been in an apprentice group for a year and it's honestly pretty lame because you've never spoken the language of God. You've never been honest with your community and invited them into your healing. Go to Celebrate Recovery. Go to NA. Go to AA. Go to SA. Go to counseling. Go to rehab. I would love to talk with you if you want to be well. Include your community in your journey toward wellness. What would it look like if as a church we actually behaved as if the church were meant to be a hospital for sinners? What if we actually behaved as a community of people as if Jesus were serious in what he said, that he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners, people who knew they needed redemption? When you go into the doctor, you're not like, Doc, I'm, I'm really ashamed to admit this, but I've broken my arm. What if matter-of-factly with each other in Christian community where we're learning to trust each other and trust God, we say, brother, I need to tell you I'm struggling with an addiction to pornography. I need to tell you, I, I've, I've been struggling in my relationship with my parents, and I'm harboring unforgiveness for that thing that happened. What if we named our sickness to each other, just like we name it to a doctor, because we want to be well? It wasn't the end of Max's story. After being kicked out of the program, he pleaded and obtained permission to continue treatment. He proceeded to undergo the most striking personality change I have ever witnessed, said Manning. He got honest, and he became more open, sincere, vulnerable, and affectionate than any man in the group. Tough love had made him real, and the truth had set him free. The denouement to his story, the night before Max completed treatment, Fred passed by his room. The door was open. Max was sitting down at a desk reading a novel. Fred knocked and entered. And for several moments, Max sat staring at the book. When he looked up, his cheeks were streaked with tears. Fred, he said hoarsely, I just prayed for the first time in my life. Max was on the road to knowing God. An intimate connection exists between the quest for honesty and a transparent personality. Max could not encounter the truth of the living God until he faced his alcoholism. From a biblical perspective, Max was a liar. In philosophy, the opposite of truth is error. In scripture, the opposite of truth is a lie. Max's lie consisted in appearing to be something that he wasn't, a social drinker. Truth for him meant acknowledging his reality, his alcoholic drinking. The evil one is the great illusionist. He varnishes the truth and encourages dishonesty. 1 John 1.8 if we say we have no sin in us, we are deceiving ourselves and refusing to admit the truth. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. 
Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened and sinful, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and with me you will find rest for your souls. Prodigal, come home to the arms of Jesus. Confess your sin to God. Confess your unhealth to Him. Confess your unhealth to your community. Resolve and intend to be well. Name that intention to Him and invite a community of people who love Jesus to make a plan and to journey with you. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. Let's pray. If you're here and you're the liar in the room, you have a secret sin that maybe nobody knows about, and you want to be well, lift your hand, please. Don't be, don't be ashamed. The language of God is honesty. If you, are, if you need redemption, lift your hand. Make it a prayer with your hand. That's me. Come on, God, help me out. Brother, sister, God says... If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if you confess your sins to God, confess it to somebody else. And I say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Come home to the family of God. Receive your new identity as a cherished and beloved child and live in the family of the Father forever, never to go back to the far-off country. You are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. Go and sin no more. For all of us, Lord Jesus, you've searched us and you know us. You know our, 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 our getting up and our lying down. You know us when we're being put together in our mother's womb. God, search us and know us. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting, the way toward health, running to the family of God in the arms of Jesus.